sent an email today from Barb, and uh, I just keep sharing your emails. You're going to stop emailing me on Wednesday is what's going to happen. <laughs> but she made a comment, and, um, and it was just, you know, I, I didn't sleep much last night, and I'm, it's been a, just kind of a hard week with just being sick and everything. And, and in the email, uh, she just mentioned, you know, we could just have fellowship tonight, and you don't have to do anything. And, and, um, and I read that, and it was so good to hear. And because I know that's true. I know that, that, that I could stand up and say, let's not open to Genesis. Let's just hang out. But I'll tell you today, um, I, needed, I needed to go here. I needed to open up the Word. It's just there's something amazing that happens for me personally, selfishly. And whether or not you all show up, and I think I've said this before, if I'm here by myself, I'm still going to do this because it, it, it does something, being in the Word. Um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he talks about that, that Jesus... Well, let me read it to you. Exactly what Paul says. Ephesians 5, 21, 22, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's head of the wife is Christ is also head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands. Now, he goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what we don't know until further down is he's not really talking to husbands and wives at all. What he's talking about is the church. He's saying this is a metaphor for the church. Now, husbands, you should love your wives, and wives, you need to love your husbands, but that's not the point. The point is that the relationship of Jesus and the church is a husband-wife relationship. And listen to what he says here. These words just jumped out at me today. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The washing of water with the word. And that just... You know, we'll, we'll get to Ephesians some year, but it, it struck me that that's exactly what the Word does, is it washes us. We get into Bible study, we get into times of worship like we have, and, and we have this washing experience where we walk out of here. Every one of us, myself, much more than just included. I mean, I, I feel this every time I get to open up and talk about and read and study the things in Scripture. I feel like I've been washed. And it's a wonderful blessing. There is no book like it. There is no book that is stirred by, taught by, and worked through our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Only God's Word does that. Well, Genesis chapter 21, with these things in mind, we're going to jump back. We talked about a few of these things on Sunday morning, but um, there, there is much more in here that we didn't touch. So let's start at verse 1. Genesis 21, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whose Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And finally, after 25 years, we see a promise come to pass. And gang, the Lord did it. The Lord made it happen. 
The Lord followed through in His time. But you need to be very clear on this. This was an act of God. This is what the Lord did. It wasn't what Abraham and Sarah were able to do. In fact, Genesis 18.11 tells us Sarah was past childbearing. I mentioned this before a few weeks back. In the King James Version, it actually says, It ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Her body was to the point where she could no longer have children. She was far beyond that point. God waited for that time. Because it needed to be clear to Abraham, to Sarah, and everyone in the household, everyone who heard the story, it needed to be clear that Sarah didn't just somehow get pregnant, but there, there was a miracle that occurred. The deck was stacked against God. And, and it's often the case, you'll notice that in Scripture, you'll notice that in our lives, oftentimes God allows this, the deck to get stacked so high that there's almost no way beyond that, that it's impossible for something to happen. For something good to come of a situation. But God loves to do that. From our natural perspective, we don't have the power, the control, the authority, the ability to deal with life's issues. To make things happen. But God isn't natural. He's supernatural. Now I'm not going to go too far into this tonight. But it's fascinating to me that if you read the story, and this would be a great study on your own. To read Genesis 21 and compare the birth of Isaac to Jesus. To the birth of Jesus. Compare the two together. You'll notice a few things. You'll notice that both births were promised. You'll notice that both births, births followed long in a burst. <laughs> birth, birth, I mean it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Both births followed long intervals of time between promise and fulfillment. Both announcements seemed absolutely incredible. Sarah laughed, you recall. When she overheard that she was supposed to have a baby, <laughs> come on, you're kidding, there's no way. What did Mary do but say, how can this be? You see, Sarah was, was past childbearing years. Mary was pre-childbearing years. Oh, her body was capable, but she was betrothed, unmarried, a virgin, being told you're going to have a baby. How much more miraculous is that? Both births seemed incredible to the mom. Both boys were named before their birth. Isaac's name was given, partially because Abraham and Sarah both laughed in their own way, but also because he would bring joy to the house. Isaac, meaning laughter. Jesus' name was given before his birth, meaning God saves. And both mothers were visited. Take note of this right here in verse 1. It tells us again, the Lord took note of Sarah. The phrase took note. Literally, it's visited. The Lord visited Sarah. He didn't just look down from on high and go, yeah, there's Sarah. I'm taking note of her. I see her. She's down there. He visited to her. He came to her. He visited her. It's amazing. He visited Sarah to bring about a miraculous conception in the same way that he visited Mary. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that the Holy Spirit caused Sarah to conceive. No, it was Abraham's seed. But the Holy Spirit did, I believe, touch Sarah's womb in such a way that it was rejuvenated. Able to bear children where it wouldn't have otherwise. The Lord visited Sarah. To make this miracle happen. And God visited Mary as well. Matthew 1.18 tells us the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Amazing. Never favor the odds against God. 
Never play against him. He's not bound by the mundane, but he functions in the miraculous. I remember as a, as a child uh, playing pickle. It's one of my favorite games to play. You know, we get a couple of guys on, on bases, one on either side, and, and you get one kid in the middle and running back and forth. Playing pickle, and, and they had the ball, you know, and it was either a baseball with, with mitts or any ball we could find would do. Sometimes a, a, you know, a good hard leather volleyball that when you hit the person in the head it really hurt. And we would play pickle, and you'd have to run back and forth. And you've seen pickles in the, in the major, uh, in, in baseball, major league baseball. Someone gets caught between the bags, and they're running back and forth, and they can't find their way back to the bag, and they're trying to beat the ball. You can never outrun the ball. Now maybe in the major leagues, on occasion, if someone drops the ball, you can get to the base but not for kids. The ball is always faster than a child can run. And life is like that. It goes by faster than we can handle it. But God, God is instantaneous. Not bound by the things of this world or by the things of our lives. He moves instantaneously. He is never caught in a pickle. If God's in the middle and one guy has the ball and throws it to the other guy, God is already there on the base and in the middle, and on the other base all at the same time. He doesn't get trapped or caught in pickles the way we do in our lives. And you may say, well, that's great if God moves instantaneously, but Sarah and Abraham waited 25 years for God to move instantaneously. How fast is that? Why is that that He doesn't move so quickly in my life? Maybe personally you've been waiting for God to move. You've been asking God to move, wondering if He would move. And He's not. And there's a, a quiet, a, a discomforting quiet. And you're wondering, when is God going to move? When is He going to do the thing that He said He would do? Well, there's another phrase here which bears mention, and it's in verse 2. Where it tells us that Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time. Literally, at the appointed time means appointment. When God had an appointment, He made an appointment. He made it very clear. We have at least five recorded times when God told Abraham, we have an appointment. Sarah, we have an appointment. It is going to happen. At the time that I have designated, you're going to have a son. God made an appointment. And the same, by the way, is true of Jesus in his birth. Galatians 4, verse 4, tells us when the fullness of time came, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, in the fullness of time. We're now waiting, by the way, for another appointment, another fullness of time. For Jesus said that when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, is come in, at that point, the church is going to be called home. It's going to happen. Divine appointments. God makes them. He keeps them. And so Abraham and Sarah heard several times from the Lord that the matter was well in hand. Still, from the first time God made that appointment, it was 25 years later. And I think about the Amanda show. I don't know if any of you have Nickelodeon or have seen this show. It cracks me up. And I only watch it because Hannah does. Okay, it's really, it's not, I don't turn it on when I'm home by myself. Amanda's this, Amanda Bynes, this, this little girl, and she's actually older now, did the movie What a Girl Wants, I think. 
Um, she cracks me up. She's hilarious. And there's a character that she plays on the show every now and then. They do these sketches, kind of like a, a kid's Saturday Night, Night Live thing. It's called The Procrastinator. And she comes out and she's got a cape and, and a whole suit on. Have I told you about The Procrastinator before? Oh, it's so funny. You really, you got to, if you have Nickelodeon, you got to watch it. But The Procrastinator will sit there and someone will come running up and go, Procrastinator, Procrastinator, my cat has caught up a tree. And The Procrastinator will go, I'll take care of it eventually. And she just over and over. That's what she says to everything. Oh no, procrastinator. Two cars just crashed in the street. Oh, go save them eventually. And this is what she does. And it cracks me up. But God is not the procrastinator. He's not like that. He doesn't say, I'll get to it eventually. And yet he does call us to faith in his eventualities. Faith in his timing. Faith in his grand appointments. Not in our time. And man, i got to learn that because I'm an impatient dude. I really am. I want it now. I want understanding now. I want resolve now in my life. And God says, I'll take care of it eventually. In His time. But with the Lord, it's not procrastination. It's patience. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And folks, this is a great reality in the Christian life that we need to be aware of. We need to settle into this. That there is often a time gap between the promises and the performance. Between our prayers and God's response. There's often a great gap of time. Now I want you to flip real quickly in your Bibles over to the book of Daniel. I want to show you two prayers, just snippets of them, short little pieces, to see something that I think is amazing. Those of you who have studied through Daniel, you've seen this before. But Daniel chapter 9, in verse 20, we find Daniel in prayer. In fact, Daniel chapter 9 itself is a phenomenal chapter, not just because it has probably the, the most amazing prophecy in Scripture. The key, by the way, to unlocking the entire book of Revelation is in Daniel chapter 9. But we won't get into that tonight. But the first half of Daniel 9, we see, Dan, we see Daniel in prayer. He's praying and he's praying hard. And he's recognizing where his people are. And he's also recognizing that at this time, they're in captivity in Babylon. They've been there 70 years. And he's reading the book of Jeremiah and recognizes that it's 70 years that they're supposed to be there. And then they get to go home. So it's to that time. The appointment is coming to a conclusion. Daniel's in the Word. He sees that and he begins to pray. And man, he is praying. And it's an awesome prayer. But look down in verse 20 at what happens. Daniel says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, people have actually looked at the Hebrew words here in Daniel's prayer, prayed it through, and it takes about three minutes. So somehow, from the beginning of Daniel's prayer to the end of his prayer, while he was praying, in the middle of that somewhere, word not only got to Daniel all the way up to heaven, but it reached back from heaven to God. He dispatches Gabriel, and Gabriel gets down, and, and it looks like Gabriel's there with time to spare. In fact, the way J. Vernon McGee describes it, I love this, he says, Gabriel's standing there tapping his foot, waiting for Daniel to finish the prayer. He responds so quickly, so immediately, and it's amazing... And it's the way, by the way, that God will respond to us all in that time 
that Revelation 20 describes calls the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennium. Isaiah 65 verse 24 says, It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Isn't that awesome? Before I even say, Lord, he's already speaking. It's kind of like radar on MASH. You know, if you've ever seen MASH, he always answers Colonel Blake before Colonel Blake even asks the question. And that's what God's going to do. That's what Jesus will do. He is going to be so very present in that time that before we even begin our prayers, he's answering our prayers. Man, I look forward to that. While they are still speaking, he says, I will hear well, there are times that God responds to prayer, responds to needs, makes a promise, and acts immediately. But there are more often than not times when he doesn't. Look in chapter 10 of Daniel, verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 2 says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor meat, nor wine enter my mouth, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the river of the great, the great river, that is the Tigris, you know of the Tigris today, in, in uh, Babylon, I was going to say, in Iraq, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man, dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Daniel gets a vision of Jesus. Wow. But how did he come to that vision? Three weeks of mourning and weeping and praying and fasting and God, please answer my prayer and nothing. Silence. And continual weeping and praying and fasting and mourning. God, please answer my prayer and nothing but silence. And I wonder why is it that God waits or withholds his response from his children. Let me give you a few things to jot down. Number one. Sometimes it's to take us into deeper communion with Him. Sometimes He simply does not answer our prayer because He wants us to keep praying because He's enjoying the time we're spending with Him. We get so focused on the result and God's saying, hey, but, but we're having fellowship. We're communing. We're connecting here. This is great. Are you feeling it? Are you experiencing me? God, I just need an answer to my prayer. And He's going... Hey, I'm right here. Let's, let's talk some more. No, no, no. Forget about talking. Just answer the prayer. If we did that in our relationships, we'd all be like, yeah, whatever. He does it to take us into deeper communion. Luke 6.12, we see in Jesus, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night, the whole night in prayer to God. What did Jesus have to pray about? What did he need help with? It's not like he didn't have the power to command the seas. Or the ability to do miracles and heal people. Or the, the, the amazing authority to teach. He had all that. But he spent the night in prayer with God for the communion. To be with the Father. Just to hang with God. Sometimes God doesn't answer the prayer because he just wants us to keep praying. He wants us to spend that time with him. Secondly, God sometimes doesn't answer our prayer or he withholds response to teach us tenacity. To teach us tenacity, to, to keep us coming back to Him, to teach us not to give up. 
Jesus said in Luke 18, chapter or verse 1, Now he was telling them a parable to show all the times that they ought to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who didn't fear God and did not respect man. But there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. I love that parable. I'm sick and tired of the widow coming. She just keeps coming and coming and coming. Okay, all right, finally, I'll answer. Just because she won't stop. And Jesus says, man, pray like that. Not because God's going to react that way, but because he wants you to be tenacious. He wants you to not give up. Keep praying. You know what? When you pray, your faith deepens. It strengthens you. It does things in your own life and your own heart that cannot happen otherwise. Well, number three. Sometimes he withholds response or waits just to tenderize our hearts for his answer. To give us time to be prepared for how he is going to answer the prayer. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Paul wrote, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Like a meat tenderizer, God wants to take hold of our hearts sometimes and just kind of pound away for a while until we're ready to receive that which he has for us. Man, in our rush, we want results. God wants repentance. In our hurry, you know, we want an immediate answer and God just wants us to open up so that our hearts can be purified. Number four. Number four, God waits to train us up in the language of faith. To train us up in the language of faith. And we've talked about this many times in the life of Abraham. We keep coming back to it. That lingua franca, the language of eternity, faith. We've seen this so much in our recent studies. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul said, Therefore, always being of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. I really think that this whole faith thing this language of faith is going to play heavily into our roles, into our functions in the coming kingdom. I think this whole concept of developing and growing in our faith is going to have a dramatic impact. It's going to be essential to life in the kingdom. And so God right now is training us up and teaching us faith. By the way, there's one other reason, and we'll get back to Genesis 21, why we may experience delay in God's response to our prayers. And that's very simply, number five, the treachery of the enemy. The treachery of the enemy. If you look a little further down in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, the angel Gabriel is now speaking to Daniel. And he's, he's come to him and he says, and this is just stunning. Behold, a hand touched me, Daniel writes, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you. And stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set on your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. Man, day one of this three-week mourning, weeping process, Daniel, we heard you. Word reached heaven instantaneously. But, listen to this. I've come responsive to your, word, to your words, but the prince 
of the kingdom of Persia, which is Iran today, was withstanding me for 21 days. 21, five, three weeks. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Amazing. Gabriel is dispatched immediately to answer Daniel's prayer, but he couldn't get through. Because this prince of Persia, this demon over this area, this principality, is now blocking entrance of Gabriel to get to Daniel, to answer Daniel's critical prayer. The treachery of the enemy. Gabriel had to call on Michael to help because apparently he was left with the kings of Persia. In other words, Gabriel gets up as far as Iran. He's trying to get down to where Daniel is. He can't get through. He is apparently, it sounds like, chained up, locked up, held by the kings of Persia. Again, we're talking spiritually here. And in that time, Michael, the archangel, was sent to get Gabriel out. And when he got him out, then Gabriel went on to Daniel. There are sometimes things happening in the spiritual realm that keep the prayers from being immediately answered that we don't even see. We don't even see the treachery of the enemy. Back to Genesis 21. Important things. Verse 8 tells us the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now this was customary. When a child is weaned, it's when they stop drinking mother's milk and now they're starting to take in solid food and they always had a big celebration. I think part of that was probably because the child was actually thriving. You know, in that day and age for a child to make it to that age was cool. It's a good thing. And so Abraham's having a party. They're, they're throwing a feast. It's a great day for a parent. But listen to this. It's a great day for the Lord. It's an especially great day for the Lord. Now some of you mothers think, no, it's just a, it was an especially great day for me. But God considers this day of weaning a great day. What do you mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 says, I, brethren, could not speak to you, Paul writing, as to spiritual men. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? When one of you says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? I can't give you any more to eat. You can't take it. You can't handle it. Gang, it is fleshly, it is even infantile behavior to be stuck on milk. To only want the lighter fare of the Bible. Hebrews 5.13 tells us, Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Now listen to this, this is applicable to us right now. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice... Who because of practice, let me say that again, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now I said it three times, did you hear it? <laughs> who because of practice, there's, there's a distinction here folks between the hearing of the word and the doing of the word. You can hear the word all you want, a lot of babies hear the word. A lot of infants take in the milk of the word, they listen and they hear it and it's good and that's fine and, and great, thank you. But to do the word, to practice what you hear, to put it into play in your life, that's a completely different thing. And apparently we're told that to those who use what is given, more will be given. The more I practice the word, the more of the word I can receive. The stronger I get, the more meat I can take in. 
you know, he's, he's not here tonight, so we can talk about Les just for a minute. I don't know if, if all of you have met Les, Donna, Donna's husband and Barb's dad. One of the things that impresses me about him, and I, I've had several conversations with him where we just sit down and talk, is how much scripture rolls off his tongue. It's scary. I mean, it's, it's frightening. He's, he's saying things right and left, and I, and I feel like I should have a pad and a pencil. What was that one? Oh, okay, and there was another one. You know, this is, it's amazing to me. It just rolls off the tongue, and it has an unmistakable and soothing power to it. This is a man who practices the Word. He's obviously in the Word. It doesn't roll off your tongue unless you are. And it's a great example for all of us of that kind of life. And I'm not just talking about scripture memorization. I'm talking about scripture that impacts and affects your daily decisions, your walk. Man, that's what we're talking about here. Moving off of the milk like Isaac and being weaned onto the solid food of the word and living that out and growing stronger and more powerful because of the word. Man, that's a great day, a day worth celebrating when a child moves from the milk to the meat. Now you might say, well what about making no provision for the flesh? I mean, you're talking about meat. We talk about meat on Sunday. Stinking rotten meat that you try and plant in the ground and it just grows maggots and nothing else. And What about that? Listen, if we are flesh focused, if we are interested in and focusing on the fleshly things, we can only handle milk. We can't get the meat. But the more spirit-focused, spirit-filled, spirit-willed we are, the more we want meat. And not the stinking meat of the flesh, but the grand, glorious, thick, juicy, prime meat of the Word. The USDA meat of God's Word. And the more you use it, the more you'll be able to take it in. One other note on the Word of God that's just amazing is the more you eat the meat and the better it comes into your body, the more you take it in, the more you feed on it, the more sweet it becomes. Psalm 19 describes it as the drippings of the honeycomb. And that's a day that's even more worth celebrating when the words of Scripture begin to just taste sweet. Well, on this day of joy and laughter, as we saw Sunday morning, there was another kind of laughter going on. Verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking, laughing at little Isaac. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Well, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he's your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, generous man, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, quick review. And in case you missed Sunday, quick review on this. Isaac is three years old at the time. Ishmael, 17 years old. The teenager is mocking the toddler. Why? Because in Scripture, Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4. Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. He is, is a sign, a type of the flesh. He was born in the energy of Abraham and Sarah, not Sarah's, Hagar's flesh. He was, a, he was born as an act of man. As an act of the flesh, flesh and an, an act of distrust as well. Isaac, on the other hand, is a picture of the spirit. Because Isaac was born in the efficacy of God's power. In the efficiency, in the wonder of God's power. So Ishmael, flesh, Isaac, 
the Spirit. And Galatians 4.29 says, As at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac, so it is now also. This mocking derisive laughter, by the way, still goes on today between flesh and spirit, spirit and flesh. Galatians 5.17 tells us the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. Now, I'm not going to go into this. Sometime we will, but fasting, the whole idea behind fasting is the denial of the flesh to focus on the spirit. That's what it's about. It's not about look at me and look at what I'm doing. As a matter of fact, Jesus says when you fast, go about your daily business. Get up, take a shower, get clean, go to work, do what you normally do, and don't let anybody know what you're doing. But in the meantime, as you feel the pangs of hunger, you are reminded constantly of the Spirit of God because you're not feeding the flesh. And you begin to feed the Spirit. That's, that's what fasting is about. The flesh is against the Spirit. And as we said on Sunday, so what do I do? How do I handle that? Well, in the example of Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar, the Bible says cast out the flesh. Cast it out. Get rid of it. And make no provision for it. We talked about this. That, that Abraham hands them bread and a skin of water and nothing else. And we think that's harsh. Abraham's a wealthy man. He's got all kinds of goods. Why not at least load them up and send them off with some kind of inheritance? But nothing. Why? Because, the Bible says, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And it's an example of that. Now, you may still think that's harsh. Harsh, hold on, we'll get there. But God wants us to learn not to feed our hunger for fleshly things, for worldly things. He wants us to starve it out and feed the Spirit instead. Now, what's interesting, if you flip, flip back to Genesis 16 in verse 2, Something happened here that, that happens again, and I don't understand the difference. We're going to look at this. Genesis 16, verse 2. It tells us that Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Actually, no. He listened to the voice of Sarai. Not Sarah. Sarai. And because he listened to his wife, Ishmael was born, a work of the flesh. So Sarai and Sarah, here, Sarai says, hey, I want you to go in and sleep with my maid and have a child. This will be a good thing, and Abraham listened to her. That was a bad thing for Abraham to do, listen to his wife. But now, go back to chapter 21. What does God tell Abraham to do in verse 12? Listen to your wife. Listen to her. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. What's the difference? The difference is that Sarah was focused on promoting her own agenda. Sarah is focused on promoting God's agenda. Sarah, folks, is becoming a truly godly woman. Sarah recognizes something. Now, true, she's a mother. Yes, she's protective of little baby Isaac. But she knows that this Isaac is a miracle child. She knows that God has a plan here. She knows that God is doing something with this, this three-year-old that is amazing. And she's watching this teenager Ishmael pick on the child, persecute, Paul says, the child. And Sarah says, not in my house. He has no inheritance here. Isaac is the child of your inheritance. Isaac is the one. Sarah has learned a few things. 
Sarah is a truly amazing woman and the New Testament in Hebrews 11 will call her a, a great woman of faith. She'll be pictured as the type of woman, ladies, to pattern yourselves after. Well, how, how does that work? I mean, just remember that Hebrews 11 doesn't say pattern yourselves after Sarah I. Pattern yourselves after Sarah. She's the woman of faith. Proverbs 31 verse 10 tells us an excellent wife who can find now if we stop right there that wouldn't be a very nice thing to say an excellent wife who can find I don't know but it goes on her worth is far more is far above jewels see I thought that was funny you guys just kind of I didn't even get a courtesy laugh on that thank you just one second thank you Sharon I appreciate that an excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels the heart of her husband trusts in her Hear that, guys? The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And down in verse 30 of Proverbs 31, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So ladies, listen up. Fear the Lord. Put Him first, and your excellence, your beauty, your worth, and your value will go through the roof. Don't call Mary Kay. Call on the Spirit. Okay? I mean, there is so much clamoring for, for covering ourselves, you know. And, uh, yeah, easy for me to say because I don't put anything on my face. I just go out and this is, this is what you get. This is it. We were just talking about how in the animal kingdom, <laughs> Becky was saying, you know, roosters are so beautiful. And then you got these hens. And I said, well, it's different among us humans, you know. I mean, take a look. But, ladies... Your excellence, if you will focus on Jesus, that's where your beauty is going to come from. I, the most beautiful women in the world, and I'm not speaking in terms of lust of the flesh, I'm speaking in terms of the spirit. The beautiful women are the ones who are seeking after the Lord. An excellent wife who can find, why? Because there aren't that many who are truly seeking after the Lord. But to be a truly excellent wife, that's the bottom line. Gentlemen, if your wife is listening to the Lord, listen to her. Don't be so manly and arrogant that we think that we've got a corner on the market of leadership in our homes, in our churches. If your wife is listening to the Lord, man, and I am learning this, if your wife is listening to the Lord, listen to her. There is a reason why in 1 Timothy 3, and I've said this before, I don't know if I've said this to you, we met with our elders and their wives and we were all talking, and, and there is a reason why in, in Paul's description of elders, 1 Timothy chapter 3, that he says the elder is supposed to be husband of one wife. Why? Because guys without wives are kind of dumb. No, I'm, those of you who aren't, I'm sorry. I mean anything like that. But what I'm saying is, God does not want a single man as an elder. God doesn't want a single guy who has no input from a godly woman leading a church. Why is that? Can't a single guy be godly? Absolutely. But I'll tell you, there is sensitivity, compassion, insight and intuition that I do not have and even as pastor of a church I don't sense what needs to be done all the time a lot of times it comes from right there sorry Cheryl to embarrass you it comes from conversation we have and Cheryl's listening to the Lord and I'm not because I'm just trying to get it done and she stopped me just long enough to say you know I think what God wants here is blah and it changes everything and so pray for our elders and their wives and pray that we listen to them as they listen 
to the Lord as well. And unmarried guys, let me just say this. Put this one at the very top of your list. A woman who listens to God. That is, that's got to be number one. Above every other thing, a woman who listens to God. Now, Sarah was concerned with protecting, Sarai was concerned with protecting herself. Sarah is concerned with promoting God's promise. Verse 15, the story goes on. When the water in the skin was used up, Hagar left the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Hagar is out in the wilderness, lost. She's watching Ishmael, and I don't know if Ishmael had been giving all the water to Hagar, and, and he himself is just drying up, and, but he's in a bad way. And so she sets her son, her teenage boy, under a bush to give him some shielding from the heat. And she goes a, a, a distance away. She knows where he is, but she doesn't want to watch her son die. And she begins to weep in the desert. It's a horrible situation. Now Sunday again, we looked at two reasons why Abraham, who loved Ishmael, would send out his son and the boy's mother with nothing but water and bread. And the two things we said were, number one, it was an indication of Abraham's faith. Abraham knew. God said to Abraham, listen to your wife, do what she says, because I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation. Or you're going to make Ishmael a great nation. I'm not going... You're going to do that. So Sarah says, drive them out, send them on their way, and God, you're telling me you're going to take care of them. That's right, Abraham. And so Abraham, who did love Ishmael, showed great faith by sending them out. Completely in the care of the Lord. It's also an illustration of the flesh, as we talked about on Sunday. Ishmael is an illustration of our flesh. Again, Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Don't provide for it. Don't give the flesh anything it needs. It doesn't need your help. Don't give it any provisions. And so Abraham sends them out. Bread, water. The water's gone. The bread's gone. Ishmael's dying. Hagar is crying. But there's also a third reason. A third reason that I want to add to the list that we didn't have time to get to on Sunday. <laughs> Imagine that. It provides, number three, illumination of my failure. This story of Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar is an indication of his faith. It's an illustration of the flesh, but it also provides illumination of my failure. What do you mean? Flip in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Now, Andrea is not here tonight, but I've had some great conversations, Barb and I have, with this young woman who has been wondering about the law versus grace. And, and what about, and there, there's a movement in Christianity in some circles of um, Christian Zionism. Now, to some degree in, in certain circles, it's, it's just a love for the Jews, a desire to see the Jews restored as God promised they, won, they, they will be down the line when they finally come to Christ. But in our conversations, um, there were questions brought up from, there are Jewish Christians, Christians who are not Jewish, but who like to place themselves in that role and abide by the law. Now I'll tell you this, and we're not going to do it tonight, but the entire book of Galatians, the whole book, is an anti-Judaizing book. Paul writes this letter to the church at Galatia and he says, don't go back to the law. 
Because there's a group of people there saying, hey, the only way to truly be a Christian is to live by the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the commandments. You've got to obey the, the Sabbath. And, and all that has to do with Judaism, you've got to live that out in addition to believing in Jesus. That's the only way to be saved. And Paul said, not even close. Not even close. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Again, this story provides illumination of my failure. Listen to this, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, Hagar, and one by the free woman, Sarah. But, according, but the son by the bondwoman, who was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise... This is allegorically speaking, Paul says, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, and she is Hagar. Again, we said Sunday, that region of Mount Sinai, that is where Hagar was wandering with Ishmael. She is very closely tied to that desert region. And so Paul points to this and says, Mount Sinai is Hagar. Verse 25, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now get this, important. Not only is Ishmael a picture of the flesh and Isaac a picture of the spirit, but watch this. Hagar symbolizes Mount Sinai. And what came from Mount Sinai? The law. Hagar is a picture of the law. Paul says Sarah, who symbolizes Mount Zion, is a picture of grace. Hagar, the law, the slave woman, Sarah, grace. Now listen to this. When I say it provides illumination of my failure, my human tendency when it comes to making no provision for the flesh is to grab a hold of the law. That's what I tend to do. When the Bible says make no provision for the flesh according to its lust, I say, oh, okay, I'm not going to provide for the flesh, so I've got to do some things. I've got to grab a hold of some things. I've got to build up some fences here. I've got to protect myself. I've got to broaden my self-discipline. I'm going to bask in my ability to follow the Lord's law and commandments. I'm going to hang on to my own self-righteousness. And see, that misses the whole point. Because here's the problem. I grab a hold of the law and try to make myself righteous. I can't keep it going for long. I begin to wear out. I begin to fail big time. As a matter of fact, my sinful flesh is illuminated in this. I can't keep the law. And so the answer to this is not only to cast out the flesh, but look down in verse 30 of Galatians 4. It's not just cast out the flesh. It's what does Scripture say, Paul says? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Who's the bondwoman? Hagar. What does Paul say she represents? The law. Mount Sinai, the law. What's wrong with the law? What's wrong with the law is that regulations produce rebellion. Always have, always will. Regulation produces rebellion. Because our spirits can't handle the regulations. Not over time. 
Maybe for a short time we can, we can hold it all up and, and make it look like we're keeping it all together, but it begins to fall apart around us, holding on to the law. I um, was privileged to work in several different churches as a youth pastor. But what's very interesting to me is when I compare, there are two churches that were dramatically different. A church that I worked in on the East Coast. Good, loving people, but it was a very legalistic church. That's, that was the bottom line. Teaching the truth, teaching the word in such a way that we had to keep it as law. Grace, grace was a radical concept in this church. When I taught through Galatians, I got in a lot of trouble at this particular church because of the things I was saying. Me getting into trouble, I probably can't imagine that. But at this church, what I saw was as we drove those kids, that youth ministry, toward keeping the law and being self-disciplined and being discipled by doing these things, these kids, one by one, I would just watch them just bounce off the walls. It was hard. And it, it drove them to rebellion. These kids were driven anyway. It was Fairfax, Virginia, an extremely high-pressure school system. Sons and daughters of statesmen and, and military higher-ups and FBI agents and government officials. That's who I had in this youth group. The elders' meetings were unbelievable. They used words I'd never heard before until I started watching C-SPAN. <laughs> you know, it's just what you would go watch C-SPAN so you could prepare for an elders' meeting. That's, that was the, the area, and the sense in this church was, get it done, succeed, hang on, do the law, be self-disciplined. You can be a good, solid Christian. And these kids rebelled. And there was no love. Very little. In fact, the most loving kids were the ones who didn't really care about all that stuff. They just wanted to hang out. The kids who were not getting the good grades. And I am 100% pro-good grades. Don't get me wrong there either. But the kids who just were saying, I'm not going to do what the system says. I'm just not going to do it. Those were the ones who got it. But the vast majority of kids in this church didn't get it. So Cheryl and I move out to California. <laughs> from Virginia. Now I grew up there, but the first time we got back to California and we were out on Huntington Beach walking around with the kids, I was just going... I mean, just the bathing, it was scary. And they were all, you know, whatever, you know, just walking around. And they didn't even see it, these kids, because of this environment they grew up in. Gang, they, they knew nothing of the law, but these kids did know grace. And they clung to it. And they loved it. And that, to me, there was such a dramatic difference. This legalistic church, this grace-driven, grace-filled church, rebellion among the kids. Kids just loved showing up for Bible study, for worship on a Wednesday night. In fact, a lot of the format of what we're doing here, it's exactly what we did for the teenagers on Wednesday nights in that church. And the skaters who were coming out, on the, out in the parking lot were coming in because of grace. Because grace doesn't drive rebellion, it breeds love. It breeds responsiveness to the Holy Spirit of God. So cast out both Ishmael the flesh and Hagar the law. It's neither the flesh nor the law that does you any good. Those are to be cast out. So I just don't keep the law. The law is only kept as you respond to grace. The more grace-filled you are, the more you understand God's love for you, the easier it is to be a righteous person. And never forget that you are righteous because God makes you so. Verse 17. After Hagar is weeping, now this is very cool, God heard the lad crying. 
And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Jesus asks a great question here, for this again, we're hearing the incarnate God, the, the angel of God, the messenger of God, this, this Christophany of Jesus, calling out of he- heaven with a tender rebuke for Hagar. What's the matter with you, Hagar? What are you upset about? I see your, your son, he's thirsty, and, and you're sitting over here a bow shot away, and you're, you're worried sick that he's dying. Don't you remember? Don't you remember, Hagar, I told you I'd make him a great nation? How can I make Ishmael a great nation if he's going to die? Don't you have trust in me? Now watch this. Flip again back to chapter 16 and verse 7. And look at what happens here. Hagar has once again or once more or previously actually ran out into the wilderness. She's scared. She's running. She's pregnant. And it tells us, actually, is she pregnant here? No, she has the baby. Sorry. Verse 7 of chapter 16. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. I. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said, I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. She's had this experience before, but there are a couple of subtle but important differences. Number one is that as you look at chapter 16, it's the angel of the Lord. It's the angel of Jehovah. Go back to to chapter 21 and verse... 17, and it's not Jehovah, it's Elohim. It's God. Well, same same God, right? Well, absolutely. Yeah, it's still God. And we're not talking about two different gods here, but one is Elohim. And in, in, in chapter 21, the other one is Jehovah. And in chapter 16, when Hagar is out there in the wilderness, Jehovah finds her. In chapter 21, the angel of Elohim calls to her from heaven. There's a dramatic difference here. You may recall when we first started studying Genesis, the chapter 1 of Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was Elohim, this more distant, powerful, creator God. And then in chapter 2, when it starts to get personal, suddenly it's Jehovah who is interacting with Adam, who is forming Adam and Eve, who is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Elohim, the great creator God. Jehovah, the personal, covenantal God. And as God interacts with people in the Old Testament, it's Jehovah who is the interactor. It is Elohim who is the grand and glorious creator. It's amazing to me that Hagar was found in the last time, but now is just hearing from heaven this time. God is dealing differently with Hagar this time around. 
Now why is that? Because the last time, she was still under Abraham's household. She was still part of that family that was covered by covenant. But she's no longer that anymore. Now she is cast out. The bondwoman and her son is out from under Abraham's household. No longer is she connected to Abraham. Now she is cast out. She is not part of the picture. And so, Jehovah, who talked to her, and I think the, the writer of Genesis is giving us a picture here. He's helping us understand something. Jehovah is the covenant God, connected to the people of the covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down the line to Jesus. Elohim is referencing not the covenantial God, but the creator God, which seems to me to be a little bit more distant. Powerful great, glorious, grand, wonderful but there's a a distancing that's taken place there he is dealing differently with the Egyptian woman and her son he's still compassionate but he's not the same in the way he's dealing he's clearly chosen his people at this point and they are the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob why? because God's reinstatement of garden level intimacy will be through Isaac and not through Ishmael Ishmael was not God's plan, as we said. He was man's plan. God's plan was through Isaac. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know, that doesn't really sound kind of fair. God's now pulling back? Well, look at this. This is a marvelous thing. Verse 20 again. God was with the lad. I really like the sound of that. God was with the lad. Ishmael was not God's choice, but God chose to be with Ishmael. Guess what? I wasn't God's choice. But God chose to be with me. I wasn't part of that covenant people. I'm somewhat similar to Ishmael in that, in that my background, my relationship going back, my heredity does not draw back to the people of Abraham. It's a different thing. Flip in your Bible, just real quickly to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 and verse 17. Paul's writing and he's talking about Israel and about how the branches of Israel have been broken. And he's talking now to Gentiles and he says, listen, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree... Don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, which would be Israel... He will not spare you either. (laughs) Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. And if you continue in his kindness, well he says otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, for if they do not continue in their unbelief, wait, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. What's the point? The point is that Israel was the original, the natural branch. 
They were broken off. You and I, because of grace, got grafted in. We are like Ishmael in the desert, but God was with the lad. God is with you lads and lasses. He's with us. We are chosen. We are grafted in in spite of the fact that my lineage was not God's choice. Well, that's not completely accurate. My lineage was God's choice because of the choice he made for Abraham's lineage. God chose Abraham in the beginning, in the first place, to draw through to the person of Jesus, who then would be, would be the way all people to come to him. Now, quickly, I want you to consider some things here, and we're going we're to finish up this chapter. Back to Genesis 21. I want to give you four quick things. There's, there's kind of a short story here, and we'll be out of here tonight. But verse 22 of chapter 21 tells us something interesting. It came about that at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me. You guys remember the story of Abimelech? Remember Abraham dealt falsely with him. He said, hey, my, 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 not my wife, my sister Sarah, isn't she beautiful? Yeah, I'll take her into my harem. Abraham lied to him. And so now Abimelech comes up to him, remembering this. This is now several years later. And he says, um, can you swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. Four things to jot down real quickly that we can learn from the behavior of this man of faith. Number one, Abraham walks quietly beyond the criticism of his critics. He walks quietly beyond the criticism of his critics. Abimelech thought Abraham was a liar and a cheat. Abimelech was not pleased with Abraham when he discovered that he had Abraham's wife in his harem and he discovered that he himself was not excited about having another woman in the harem. If you get my drift. And when he discovered, furthermore, that the women of his house were not able to bear children and that his entire country was going to die because Abraham had dealt falsely with him. You remember that story? Well, Abraham doesn't say much after that. He does say why he did it in Genesis 20, verses 10 and 11. He doesn't defend his actions, though. He could, at that point, use his prophet status. He doesn't. God tells Abimelech, this is my prophet, and you need to give him his wife back. Abraham doesn't say, yeah, prophet, prophet of God. Abraham doesn't also spend millions of dollars launching ad campaigns to prove his integrity, like we're seeing on TV right now. You've got to understand that this is who I am, and this is what the ad says. And, and you know, to, to watch a carry ad and a bush ad back-to-back, back back, if you didn't know anything about the character, you'd go, well, it can't be both of them. Somebody's got to have integrity, or nobody. <laughs> Who is it? Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham doesn't fight for himself. Abraham doesn't defend himself. Abraham doesn't start going around the land saying, you know that, that, that dealing falsely thing? <laughs> that was just a big mistake. That wasn't really me. I'm a prophet of the Lord God. I, I don't do those kinds of things. I didn't really do... It was just a big misunderstanding. Abraham just quietly lives with the Lord. He walks with the Father to the point that now years later Abimelech says God is with you in all that you do that's really cool Abimelech this pagan king recognizes that God is with Abraham he doesn't hear from Abraham about it Abraham hasn't been preaching to him about it 
All he knows is that God is with this guy. Abraham walks quietly and that silences the criticism of his critics. And the truth is, if you are living by the Lord, the truth will out. If you are following God, truth will be known. It won't always thrill people, but it will come out. We don't have to defend ourselves. And I am learning this the hard way. It's not my business to prove my righteousness. It's not my role to take on the world and say, hey, this is who I am. It's God's concern. It's His focus. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless? He does it. I don't do it. He does it. You know what I'm learning here? Self-promotion and self-defense don't work. You know what works? Integrity and longevity. Follow the Lord. Trust in Him. And people will say about you like Abimelech says, God's with you in all that you do. And that just becomes an undeniable truth. Verse 25 tells us that Abraham then complained to Abimelech because of the well water of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know what is, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it today. Interesting thing about Abimelech's character, he says the same thing when he finds out Sarah is in his harem and, and is someone else's wife. Well, I didn't know. But this guy, hello? This guy's not paying attention to the world around him. But he says, hey, I didn't know anything about this. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, verse 27, and, to the, and the two of them made a covenant. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, well, what do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And Abraham said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba. Beersheba means the well of oath, or the well of sevens. Because there were two of them there who took an oath. Verse 32, So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And it's very interesting here, not only does Abraham walk quietly, but Abraham is wise secularly. He's wise secularly. You may recall that Abe did the same thing with Lot. There's a problem with Lot. And so he goes to Lot and he deals with the problem. I like this about Abraham. He may not always do the right thing, but at least he's up front. If there's a problem, he deals. He gets to it. And he is wise secularly. And folks, I hate to say it, but Christians are not often the most shrewd people in the world. We're not. And I can only say that because that's exactly what Jesus said. Luke 16, verse 8. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Wow. Jesus looks at us and in our Christian walk and says, you know, sometimes the world is a little sharper than you guys are. <laughs> sometimes they're a little more shrewd than you are. And I look at that and I go, huh? 
Well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be pure. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. I'm supposed to roll over and play dead and let people walk all over me. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Not even close. No. We are to develop shrewdness while maintaining innocence. How in the world do you do that? I love this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Gang, we have a source of intelligence that Abraham didn't even have. We have a strength and a voice beyond ourselves that comes from God himself. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But, but, listen, when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I love how Jesus doesn't just say the Holy Spirit speaks through you or the Spirit of the Lord speaks through you. He says the Spirit of your Father speaks through you. How can I be innocent as a dove and shrewd as a snake in this world? By listening to the Holy Spirit who speaks through me. Because He has the shrewdness that I lack and He has the innocence that I lack. Abraham is a wise man secularly. And I wonder over time, how has this happened? He's become this this quiet, faithful, wise man. Number three, Abraham worships fearfully. He worships fearfully in that he knows the Lord both ways. Look at verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Every time, at least in the New American Standard Bible, you see the word Lord, it's Jehovah. When you see the word God, it's Elohim. And here in this one single verse, Abraham called on the name of Jehovah, the everlasting Elohim. What do you mean? Abraham knows and worships the Lord both ways. He understands and recognizes God as Jehovah and God as Elohim. Now listen, we're almost done, but this is important. I keep saying that, but it is. In our pursuit of knowing God intimately, especially in this culture, we have gotten, I think, dangerously relaxed with God. The big man, the man upstairs, the head honcho, the main, the main guy, you know, the dude... Gee, we call him by these comfortable, casual names, but folks, may I just remind you what Abraham clearly understands. This is the Lord God we're talking about. We refer to God in so many ways, it's amazing. We, we, we toss the person in the name of Jehovah around like a pet name, a plaything, even a curse word, and that's dangerous stuff. Because while he is the intimate Jesus who walked among us, lived like us, had flesh like us, understands us, he is also Elohim, the Creator God. He is also that grand and great authority and we should be in awe. We will be shaking before him. When the Bible says at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, you know why? Because when Jesus shows up we are going to freak out when we see him in his glory. We will be overwhelmed at the true nature and power and wonder and splendor of Elohim, this awesome, awesome God that we serve. 
But listen, this is even more important than respecting the name of God. We need to learn like Abraham to know him both ways. To know him as Jehovah, that close covenantal God, the the personal God, but also to know him as Elohim, the great and grand glorious creator, Psalm 18. And let me just read this to you very quickly. Psalm 18 and verse 1. David, David just describes this so amazingly. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you. Man, love relationship, David and, and his dad. I love you. And then he goes on, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord. And I cried to my God for help. And He heard my voice out of His temple. And my cry for help before Him came into His ears. Now listen to what happens. (laughs) Then the, the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because He was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his abiding place, his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds. Hailstones and coals of fire, all by the way symbols of judgment. And the Lord thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. And the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. They were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. Elohim, Creator God. Man, David trusted in his strength. But listen to this verse. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. There is in God this nature that is so awesome. The powerful God of creation, Elohim. And we need to know and respect and bow down before that God. But there is also in God's nature the personal God of the covenant who responds to you, who delights in you, who wants to be with you and walk with you. And David nails this. This overwhelming mix of intimacy and awe. This is the God who touches the womb and brings life and laughter. This is the God who drives out the work of the flesh into the wilderness. The God who calls to the hopeless slave girl in the desert and lifts her head. This is the God who gives life to the lad, a wild olive tree whose only hope is to be grafted into the natural branches. He goes on before those he calls, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And let me encourage you as we close tonight to take your little life and know that he delights in it and offer it up to this God. For He is both the power that leads and He is the love I need 
And we're told in verse 34 that Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Number four on your list is that Abraham wanders faithfully. He wanders faithfully even in his old age. He's still a sojourner. Over a hundred years old, Hebrews 11.10 says he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Father, that's what we're looking for. We are looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And Lord, I know there are those here tonight who need Jehovah, who need you, Lord, to touch them gently, to remind them of the depth of the new covenant love that you have for them. And there are those tonight, Father, who need to be reminded that you are Elohim, the great creator, the power, the authority, the grandeur. And among all of us, Father, we just need to be reminded that you delight in us. That even though, like Ishmael, we may feel cast out, you find us and you are with us. Father, increase our faith as we see this tremendous story of Abraham and watch as you increase his faith day by day. Help us to walk quietly and in integrity and just to trust you and to delight in your delight. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.